Welcome to the Stott Legacy. He is within us. He shares in the pain. The reason we must worship God is that only God We must God not ask God to change his timetable because we are getting Lord a little bit of pain. Well, think of the beginning of the first letter of Peter when he says that we were chosen He heard God the, the God. voice of God the it Father. It is 2021 and this marks the centenary of the birth of John Stott in central London. He holds a unique place in 20th century church history, not just because of his impact on the British church, but because of his impact on the global church. So throughout the year, we will meet a broad range of people from across the world, both women and men who knew him and worked closely with him, as well as those who never met him, but were nevertheless shaped by his preaching and writing. This is not because he always got things right. He was quick to admit his own flaws and blind spots, but because his thought, life and example represent many challenges to our own generation. My name is Mark Mennell and I hope you will join me as we explore inspiration, challenges and insights from the life of Uncle John. If there were to be a rebuke coming from John Stott, it probably would be against cynicism because I think there are many people who are ready to give up because they have seen so many uh, examples of insanity, uh, lack of integrity, lack of fidelity. And I read The voice you just heard is that of Russell Moore, who is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, which uh, stands as the moral and public policy agency of America's largest Protestant denomination. Dr. Moore is the author of several books, including recently The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel, and The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. He's from Mississippi, and he and his wife Maria are the parents of five sons, and I've had the privilege of getting to know him a little bit in recent months in Nashville, which is where he is based. I got in touch with him because the day after those terrifying, extraordinary scenes from Washington DC, when a mob attacked and actually invaded the US Capitol building, the day after that, Russell Moore posted on his Instagram feed a photograph of John Stott. And this was the caption, sanity, integrity, fidelity, evangelical with the actual evangel. We did not know how much we would miss you. It was fascinating that here was a prominent voice in the American public arena from a Christian perspective, and one of the few voices on the right who'd been outspoken as a Christian against President Trump and his policies, and that was at great personal cost. Here he was, looking back, being wistful almost about a British evangelical who'd been dead now for 10 years. And so naturally I wondered what it was about John Stott that had so intrigued and captured him and why he was thinking of him at this moment of acute political crisis. I blame uh, particularly American evangelicalism for that sort of uh, confusion and creating that sort of cynicism. And uh, I see the exact opposite in the, the life and ministry of John Stott. I was in London about a year and a half ago and was um, in a room where someone stood up and said, uh, if you uh, either came to know Christ or the person who led you to faith in Christ, 
uh, did so at a Billy Graham crusade in the United Kingdom. Would you raise your hand? And I was stunned at all of the hands that went up. And this very gracious host uh, said, uh, so we, we just want to express our thanks to American evangelical Christianity for partnering in the gospel in this way. And I just uh, sat back and thought, well, how much do I owe to C.S. Lewis and J.I. Packer and John Stott and others? And I, I think that that goes all the way back to when I was about 15 years old and I went through this horrible uh, spiritual crisis where I was seeing a lot of uh, things in Bible Belt Christianity that sort of have come to full fruition, or at least I hope it's full fruition. Just looking at the broader picture of Bible Belt Christianity, I was not disillusioned with my church but I was disillusioned with the Bible Belt ecosystem that, that I was in. And uh, Stott was a really big part of that in uh, giving a voice of orthodox, evangelical, Bible-believing uh, Christianity that, uh, that was rooted in something deep and wide, to, to go back to Sunday school songs. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was important for me. And um, do you remember how you got hold of those books, say the Lewis or, or uh, others? Yeah. Well, I, with Lewis, it was because I had read Chronicles of Narnia throughout right. my childhood, who knows how many times. And so when I saw his name on the spine of the book in the bookstore, I recognized it. With Stott, I think um, that it... I don't remember exactly, but I'm quite confident that it was through Christianity Today magazine because uh, I started to read, there was a column in something called CCM magazine, Contemporary Christian Music uh, magazine. It was a, a column. It wasn't about music. It was just about uh, anything from month to month that really resonated with me. And I sort of went from that uh, over to Christianity Today. And so I would read quite a bit of uh, either about Stott or, or sometimes by Stott there. So um, dialing forward a, a bit from that, did you ever end up meeting him? Never, never. It's one of the great uh, regrets uh, when uh, I, someone asked me, um, what are, who are the people that perhaps you could have met if you had made an effort to and you never did? And uh, I said immediately, Walker Percy mm. and, uh, and John Stott. And uh, no, I never did uh, meet him. But uh, I have met countless people who either uh, served on his staff or were members of his church or who knew him in various other um, capacities. And one of the things that's so startling about that is that every single one of them, I've not met any one of, uh, of such people who would say anything different. They all say up close and inside, Stott was even better. And so whatever, so whatever you think of Stott, as a, as a person behind closed doors, it was all the more admirable. And that, sadly, that's a stunning thing because we're so accustomed to seeing, uh, I remember meeting some of my heroes uh, in ministry and being devastated mm. by the, the sort of stuff 
that would go on behind closed doors. And I'm not even talking about scandal right. at this point. I'm just talking about anger and envy and pettiness and, and uh, all those things. And everyone who knew Stott says um, that they came away seeing humility, uh, seeing prayer, godliness, all of those things. And that's hmm. it's sadly rare. And that's actually quite a, uh, unfortunately, a contemporary and pertinent issue at the moment, isn't it? Because I think there's just this sense of almost dominoes of revered evangelicals on both sides of the Atlantic being exposed um, for a range of different things, whether it's abuse or just inconsistency and hypocrisy. Yes, and and sadly, uh, we're getting to the point where what we're seeing is not only hypocrisy. There's there's always been hypocrisy uh, within some sector of the Christian church going back 2,000 years. Jesus told us there would be. But what we're seeing much of now is not even hypocrisy. It's um, sort of an open presentation of a lack of fidelity to the Sermon on the Mount, which often is not an impediment to ministry, but fuel for uh, ministry. And that's something that I think is different about our time than, than previous eras. I think that's a very helpful point. Um, and actually, it was the Sermon on the Mount, of course, that was, I don't know whether it was, it wasn't quite the first Bible Speaks today, but it was certainly one of the first. And uh, it's quite telling that that was, that was one of the priorities at the beginning, isn't it? Yes, yes. And, and that's another thing that drew me to Stott is that um, there are many evangelicals who, because they, I think for a couple of reasons. One, because they're reacting to liberalism, which sometimes is a, a moral example of Jesus's teaching abstracted from his cross. And because the Pauline letters are easier to preach or at least easier to outline in terms of point by sub point mm-hmm. by sub sub point for people who preach that you way. You can get your system and framework clearly. Yeah. And and I think sometimes there's a reluctance uh, then to really deal with uh, the Gospels and to, to deal with the teachings of, of Jesus. And, and Stott didn't do that. There was, you know, I, when, I, when I was thinking about talking to you about this today, um, and I thought, what are the most influential books that Stott, uh, that I read of Stott's? Mm-hmm. And there are so many, but the one that sticks out is that little book, Balanced Christianity, uh, mm-hmm. because it so sums up why I was so appreciative and why so many people were appreciative of Stott, because he, he seemed to recognize what Lewis warned about, that the devil doesn't send errors into the world one by one, but two by two on either side of the truth and uh, would speak to uh, both ends, uh, calling people together to a wholeness and to an integrity. And so it's not Jesus versus Paul. It's the the spirit of Christ in the gospels and in the epistles and in the Old Testament uh, and in uh, the, the letters of John, the revelation and so on. And also in terms of uh, the pitting of, uh, say, evangelism versus social action or uh, faith uh, versus obedience, all of those things that so often become contrasted with one another, um, he refused to do that. Right. 
So, I mean, it's interesting you pick up on that balance. I, I can I can really picture him saying the word. There was just he he was determined to avoid the extremes. Sometimes, though, could that become become a fault in itself that actually one's constantly trying to keep things in balance? Actually, one doesn't fire on all cylinders for something that was important. Do you think that's fair, or, or was did he overcome that? Well, he he warned about that in um, the the little book. Um, what was it? Evangelical truth or evangelical right. integrity? Can't remember yeah. the title of it. But he he talks about uh, in the biological sciences, and it's also true in the the in historical scholarship, the difference between lumpers and splitters. Uh, that, that lumpers are trying to lump everything into one category and emphasize the sameness, and the splitters are trying to differentiate between uh, different things, species or any number of things it could be. And he said the same thing could happen in Christianity, that you could have a breadth that uh, doesn't insist on content at all, or you can have the sort of, I think, I think the way he put it was, uh, the kind of sectarian that is um, that is always looking for purity tests until they have cut the Christian Church down to um, to uh, the size that could fit on Huckleberry Finn's raft or something <laughs> something like that. Um, right. And so I think that the the thing that I appreciate about his understanding of balance, which he talks about in Balanced Christianity, he talks about in many places, is that it's not look at what conversations are going on and then split the difference. That's not ever what he was doing. Instead, what he's doing is saying uh, every aspect of Christian truth and life can be deviated from in multiple ways and not only one. And so what we often see, and I deal with this constantly, uh, is uh, the phenomenon of people who, because they experience something bad, seek to protect themselves from that by going to the opposite extreme, right. just bypassing uh, biblical truth to get there. So if, if I hear someone who says to me, let's not focus on the imperatives of Scripture, on what to do. Uh, let's focus only on the indicatives of who we are in Christ. I almost in almost every case, that's someone who's coming out of a really legalistic, authoritarian sort mm -hmm. of background, and they, they want to get as far away from that as possible. And the same thing tends to be true if someone says, I really want our church to definitively have a position on whether or not um, we should celebrate Halloween or what schooling ought to look like for children or so forth and so on. That's usually somebody who's coming out of a really chaotic sort of background and wants to avoid that by having lists of rules and regulations. But of course, the Bible speaks to uh, every side uh, of deviation, and I think that's where Stott, uh, Stott also did that. He, he had the understanding of what the Bible taught, and then he would speak. You know, and I, I find that we, we have to do that. Uh, so often, when it comes to, for instance, um, if I'm preaching on abortion, I have to know that there are going to be some people who are overhearing me who are thinking there are no consequences to my actions 
and I have to speak of the justice of God and of the judgment seat and accountability. And But I also know that there are going to be some people in the room who are going to assume that if they've had abortions or paid for abortions, that that means that they are in some separate category of sinner and that, that Jesus is not inviting them and that the blood of Christ can atone for sin, but not for that sin. And so I have to speak to those accused consciences uh, as well. And so you're, you're constantly having to, to hit both of those things mm-hmm. in the way that Paul is coming in and hitting uh, cowardice and timidity and quarrelsomeness and an unhealthy craving for uh, controversy. Jesus is emphasizing love of God and love of neighbor. And those things aren't opposed to one another. And I think John Stott really, um, it, it had to be a conscious, ongoing commitment uh, to that because it shows up so well in everything. I'm going to interrupt our conversation briefly and introduce another friend, Christy Mayer. She's working on her PhD in philosophy and teaching part-time at Oak Hill Theological College in London. The book she's going to talk about is John Stott's book, The Living Church, which came out in 2007, subtitled Convictions of a Lifelong Pastor. There is so much that I'd love to share with you as to how this book has shaped and formed me and influenced me over the course of my life from when I was quite a young Christian. But I'll just focus on, there are two big things really. The the first one is how John talks about the way in which we formulate the good news in our world's increasingly pluralistic societies. He says that there are two opposite extremes that we should avoid. And the first one is what he calls total fixity. And the second one is total fluidity. So the first one is total fixity. He writes that it's when we wrap up the message in a nice, neat package, uh, people tape, label and price tag it as if it were destined for the supermarket. Then, unless their favourite phraseology is used, they roundly declare that the gospel has not been preached. And then the other extreme, the opposite extreme, is total fluidity. And so here he kind of talks about how, of course, the gospel isn't proclaimed in a vacuum. It's in a particular situation. But what happens when total fluidity is is employed is when we basically we start to dilute and walk away from from the core message of the gospel. And so what he does is he puts forward this third way. And here he says that somehow we have to learn how to combine these two proper concerns. This is just pure gold. I absolutely love this. He says we have to wrestle with the dialectic between the ancient word and the modern world, between what has been given and what has been left open, between context and content, scripture and culture, revelation and contextualization. We need more fidelity to scripture and more sensitivity to people, not one without the other, but both. This has really been a such a stream of just living water for me as I've engaged with kind of public and, and personal evangelism and apologetics training um, in CU missions and, and is in my role as well as I teach philosophy and ethics and apologetics here. This has just been so, so good for, for my soul over the years as I've returned to these words. I'm interested in particularly the effect that he had in the United States because obviously he never lived here and he 
he was a regular visitor, particularly through Billy Graham and, and other friends. But mm-hmm. from your perceptions, what what impact did he make? And and do you think that's sort of gone out of view now? Is it his his influence waned? Do you think? Uh, well, I don't think his influence has waned, but I think often his influence is felt, and people don't know where it's coming from. Uh, the, the, the things that Stott taught and did sometimes are mediated uh, through the people he affected. But I had a friend who's now with the Lord, Michael Cromerty, who said, and I think mm. it was 2004, he said, if American evangelicalism um, were to have a pope, it would be John Stott. Um, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure about that, but I do think that... Um, and I know I that he wasn't that- particularly impressed with Michael for saying that. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. And we we wouldn't appreciate him as much if he loved him. Uh, But I do know that, and and Michael was part of this. He and I uh, had a mutual friend who was not a believer and uh, wanted to, was always quoting about evangelicalism, sort of the uh, political activists that are always on television in the United States. And and uh, Michael said, you know, you really ought to look at someone who is consistent with the evangelical tradition as it really is. And he said, well, you know, who would you suggest? And he said, John Stott. And so this person read everything he could of John Stott, ended up uh, becoming a believer. I don't think John Stott ever knew that or would have known that. So I think that influence is, is ongoing even when it's not recognized to be from Stott. And, but I do think that um, I know that in almost every American evangelical seminary that, that I know of, preaching students are going to read Between Two Worlds. And in almost every uh, evangelical seminary, students that are studying soteriology are going to read The Cross of Christ. And those things, right. uh, those things have ongoing uh, relevance because they're written in a, in a timeless sort of way. Right. And I guess also in your line of work, a book like Issues Facing Christians Today obviously needed more updating because presenting issues changed. But I mean, how did he approach ethics in that book that perhaps still has an influence uh, issues facing Christian today, uh, t- facing Christians today, is more dated than, say, the cross right. of Christ would be, but by necessity, right. uh, because he's addressing issues. But the reason that I uh, often give this uh, book to students is not so much that students can find out here's the proper Christian response to fill in the blank, because those issues are just always changing. Um, especially in the sort of uh, technologically driven world that we're living in right now. But instead, so that they can see how Stott is getting there. Uh, What is it that he's doing with the Bible and the biblical story? And how is he looking at uh, people who disagree with him? So, uh, you know, he did that uh, debate with uh, David Edwards. Right, um, Essentials. That was in... Yes, Essentials, yeah. He had that debate, and then um, I read once an interview that was done with him about that, and he tried to describe David Edwards' liberal theological perspective, and it was, uh, I, I think that it's 
it was a perfectly fair representation. And he, he said, I think that David would say that that's not unfair. And I, and I hope so. That is a crucial skill because it's easy to go in and just uh, caricature what one's opponents would believe and say in a way that can cause the already convinced to applaud, but is not going to be persuading anybody at all. It's much more difficult to come in and construct another viewpoint exactly the way that that person would. And I think he did that in the cross of Christ when, when he goes through and talks about objections to substitutionary atonement. Um, it, it, it wasn't the sort of um, caricatured polemics that, that one can see sometimes. And likewise, I think um, with his Bible Speaks a Day on Romans, I think from what I've gathered, the writing of that book was an incredibly painful process for him because he was engaging with new perspectives on Paul and going really deep with them and finding himself at points convinced and thinking, oh, where does this leave me? And so constantly wrestling was quite a remarkable um, uh, example of precisely what you're talking about. Yes, and, and, that, and that at an age where what one often sees is people either aging into a, a kind of withdrawal, not as actively engaged as they used to be, or people who are becoming, uh, just sort of taking the person that they were and then amping that up uh, to, uh, to, to some sort of a, a caricature. And what, what you see with Stott there is someone who's still learning, still engaged, has the humility to say, uh, there may be people who can teach me something and and the wisdom to be able to say, uh, sometimes there are people who can teach you part of a thing hmm. and not all of it. Hmm. Uh, so there, there are some things you would say, well, that doesn't line up with the word of God and other things that, that one would say, well, that does. Well, don't we have to do that all the time with ourselves? Right. To, to come in and say, I previously would have said or done X, Y, or Z, and some of those things I would still do, and others I wouldn't because the Word of God stands in judgment over it all. Absolutely right. So supposing you're talking to a young believer um, now uh, in the States, and they don't know anything about John, um, his ministry or writing, where would you point them you know, to start off, to, to sort of begin to get immersed into the way he thought and how he can help us? Well, what I, what I did uh, not too long ago was to recommend to someone the audio books that, that Stott had recorded um, on uh, hmm. that, that little book that he did on leadership, um, which came out of, I think... Calling uh, Christians Leaders? He, yes, yes. Um, I've recommended that to a lot of people because they can they can get the sense of uh, Stott from that while they're driving around. I've given balanced Christianity to a lot of people as well, but I'll sometimes sort of decide um, where someone is. So if someone's more theologically inclined, um, I might give them the cross of Christ. If someone's less so. Uh, 
something else. So, but, mm-hmm. but that's the thing with John Stott. There's so many different things that one could choose from uh, where mm-hmm. someone can be introduced to him because his, his areas of interest and competency were so broad. So let's um, return to where we began and that Instagram post of John. Um, I mean, obviously, it's on both sides of the Atlantic, it's obvious that we really lack a, a, a large number of leaders who express that sanity, integrity and fidelity. What do you think, what do you think he might challenge us today with, if he was around, what, looking around? Can you sum it up, do you think? I think probably if if there were to be a rebuke coming from John Stott, it probably would be against cynicism, huh. because I, I think there are many people who are ready to give up because they have seen so many uh, examples of insanity, uh, lack of integrity, lack of fidelity, and there. I mean, I I read not long ago. That was really a sad uh, book by someone who had been a pastor and is now an atheist and how he became an atheist. And it wasn't because he was challenged philosophically about the Trinity or, or something else. It was because he had encountered so much ugliness in Christian life that he came to believe that the new birth didn't exist. And if the new birth didn't exist, he sort of worked his way back from there. Well, I think that what Stott would do is to speak to people who are tempted, usually not to atheism, but they're tempted just to despair and to say, Jesus is ruling. Uh, God is putting all things under his feet. The church is continually being renewed. And to, as if you notice what happened with Stott, his influence became more and more global because his mm. focus became uh, more and more global. And I think, the, I think he would probably tell us, look at what God is doing, not just in your corner of the world, whatever that happens to, to be, but across the world. And there, that, that really is invigorating. It really is. Well, uh, Russell, thank you so much for your time. That's a wonderful note on which to end. Um, and uh, I think many will have found this conversation, well, I hope so, I'm sure they will, very helpful indeed, so thank you. Thank you. Langham Partnership is the umbrella for the various international ministries that were formed out of John Stott's work. It has three programmes, Langham Scholars, Langham Literature and Langham Preaching, and works in around 90 countries. It's committed to equipping indigenous churches and their leaders around the world by resourcing, helping to train and equip scholars, writers, pastors, and Bible teachers. Our prayer request this week is for Langham Scholars. Our Langham Scholars are young men and women supported to do theological PhDs at institutions around the world. And they're often identified and selected in part because they come from contexts with very few people trained to that kind of academic level. And so they have an extraordinary potential to make a big difference to the church where they're from. Of course, you don't need me to tell you that COVID has affected the world. 
and none of us has got away without at least inconvenience, if not grief and heartbreak. But one of the consequences we don't often think about of things like the travel bans has been for our scholars, because they are therefore unable to travel to access both the resources and libraries that they would otherwise have been using to do their research. Now, of course, the internet has made a big change for that, and there's a lot that can be done online, but not everything. So please do pray for our scholars who have to try and navigate these difficult challenges on top of everything else, that they would be able to get access to what they need as and when they need it. You've been listening to The Stott Legacy with me, Mark Mennell. Thank you very much for listening. In particular, I want to thank Vic Marse, my colleague uh, who works with Langham Partnership UK and Ireland. She has been slogging away in the background, working very hard, putting all the ingredients to these episodes together, editing and polishing and producing a first-class job. If you want to find out more about uh, Langham Partnership, you can go to langham.org, that is L-A-N-G-H-A-M.org. Also, if you want to find out more about John Stott himself and anything that's happening for this centenary year, then go to the website johnstott, all one word, .org. And on that site, you'll find a blog for this podcast with links and photographs for each episode. That's johnstott.org forward slash podcast. Until next time, goodbye.